Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 121. We've got a prolific guest panel today on our Saturday Roundtable, and as we're discussing the relationships between agencies and freelancers. Uh, before I let the panel introduce themselves, I uh, want to remind you, uh, if you enjoy the show, go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, that helps us out. And I also want to remind you, uh, WP Tonic is not only a podcast, uh, it's a service uh, for WordPress maintenance and uh, general development. If you have legacy clients that you are raising your rates, but you still want to leave them in capable hands, you can partner with WP Tonic and we can help you out with that. And with that, I want to introduce our panel today. Let them introduce themselves. Uh, Matt Inglot, Nick Mager, and Brian Lee Jackson. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Matt. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm the founder of Freelance Transformation. That's a podcast and a pretty nifty website, all geared towards helping freelancers build a freelancing life uh, that actually fits their lifestyle needs. So, you know, you can't have the business and you can't have a great lifestyle. And I'm also the founder of uh of a micro agency myself. Uh, it's called Tilted Pixel and I've been at it for 11 years. So <laughs> um, somewhere along the way, I think I picked up a couple tips. Very good. Uh, Nick? Hey guys, uh, I'm Nick Meager. I'm one third of uh, Primer Co, which is a web development and design agency uh, where we specialize uh, in making websites for pretty much uh, service-based businesses. And I live in Fort Worth, Texas. Very good. Brian? Hi, yeah, I'm uh, I'm the director of inbound marketing over at Kinsta, where we do uh, high-performance web, web hosting. Um, but I've actually worked at um, agencies previously in my past before, and I've done the freelancing thing too. So I've kind of been at both ends of the spectrum. So I think it'll be a good discussion. And I'm in Arizona. Very good. And I'm John Locke. I run a small WordPress consultancy here in Sacramento, California, and uh, our areas of specialization are local SEO and WooCommerce integrations. Uh, so before we get into our main topic today, we have a couple news items. Uh, I don't know uh, how familiar everybody is with these, but the first news item is the Word Sesh chat with M Matt Mullenweg. And uh, as you may know, Matt Mullenweg is the founder of Automatic, uh, the originator of WordPress. Um, a couple things I took out of it, his talk, were uh, the focus is on internationalization and, and growing WordPress um, through uh, translations and, and reaching the non-English-speaking world, and then also looking at competitors like Wix and Squarespace who are spending on advertising and, and maybe have a little bit easier interface. Uh, Matt, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, on that, I have only a couple of thoughts. Um, I am excited about the idea of WordPress continuing to kind of try to make itself as accessible to everybody as possible. And I remember WordPress from like the original days. I remember when we didn't even have WordPress, we had PHP Nuke and some of these like other content management systems that well, let, let's just say they they were dated. <laughs> um, so it's impressive that WordPress has 
stuck around this long, but the challenge that it's always faced, of course, is because it's stuck around this long, um, it has the code base to show it. Um, so anything that WordPress can do that kind of puts it forward into kind of modern standards, into the internationalization, into being reachable by everybody is fantastic. Um, I kind of personally suspect that as time goes on though, um, I think it's going to be more of a thing where competitors like Wix and Weebly and so on are going to be the choice if you don't want to become a website developer of some kind, like even, you know, casually. And I think WordPress is ultimately going to be kind of that next level up where either you're a serious DIYer or, uh, of course, you, you are a professional. You, you do this for a living. You build websites for people. And I think we just have to accept that maybe WordPress is not the platform for absolutely everybody for every possible thing. And that's probably a good thing. No, that's, that's, uh, I, I do agree with that. I think it is out of fork in the road where it, it, it has up to this point tried to be everything for everyone. Uh, Nick, what, what were your thoughts from the word sesh uh, with Matt Mullenweg? I like what Matt just said. I think that's extremely true. I think there's, there's a use case for everything. Um, I do like that they're trying to, you know, spread it as, you know, as much as possible. But I think, you know, the more that these, you know, website builders come out, uh, Weebly, Squarespace and all that, I think there is room for those types of products. And I think unless you are like a do-it-yourselfer or you're willing to hire somebody to help you with it and, you know, depending on what your, your overall goal is and your end goal, it kind of depends, you know, which platform you go on to just based on, you know, whether you want to lock yourself into like a proprietary software like that. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think internationally, if we can push that as much as possible, I think that would be, you know, the best thing we could do. And I do agree. I, I think that there is a lot of saturation in the English speaking world. I think there's a lot of potential for growth in, you know, the rest of the world. Uh, Cause let's face it, that's bigger yeah. than the English speaking world for sure. Uh, Brian, what were your takeaways from, from this episode of, uh, I, I, um, I was actually going to tie it into something I actually saw yesterday, which is kind of interesting as far as the international side goes, pushing it kind of globally more was, I don't know if anyone saw the, the white house proposed this international entrepreneur rule yesterday, um, which is now um, focused on getting, uh, you know, other nationalities in the U S starting businesses um, and startups. And it's going to make it a lot easier for them basically to do that. Um, hmm. So I think, I think uh, tying that in with WordPress, that could be really exciting as far as pushing it globally because I think it'll just be more universal everywhere. Um, and as far as the Wix thing goes, too, with the, the builders, I think they're, um, like Matt said, too, I think it almost seems like the more, the more developers are using WordPress lately than there were in the last couple of years, like using WP, CLI, all that stuff's popping up more now than it was a couple of years ago. Um, and I know a friend of mine just the other day, they were going to do a website for a wedding. Um, and without asking anyone, you know, they went and they used, they used Wix because they had no clue what WordPress was. So I think there will be always those kind of people where they need a website fast. They go Google free website, you know, Wix comes up 
it allows them to do it in five minutes and they're done. Sometimes that's all people need actually, to be honest. Um, but like, um, Matt and Nick said, there's, there's going to be use cases for, for everyone. I think, um, people that need to build a website, you know, full blown going forward, I think are still going to want to use WordPress. No, I, and I think that's true. I think it's very interesting. You said that there's like a lot of people that don't have brand awareness of WordPress yet. And you, that is something that Matt Mullenweg mentioned was he sees Wix and Squarespace and these different people like spending a ton of money uh, on advertising. And that he was talking about like actually having a budget for advertising, which is, I think, the first time that I think that they've ever mentioned that, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, so the second topic uh, Google to penalize pages with intrusive pop-up ads starting in January 2017. And in particular, they were going to penalize uh, kind of interstitials, like kind of like what you see like on Forbes.com where it's you have to see the pop-up before you actually get to the site content. Uh, do you think this is a good thing, Matt? Yes. Uh, well, yes and no. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, this is kind of a challenging topic. I, I have like a very personal vendetta against like especially the Forbes style of ad. Um, I I really think it ruins the web experience. So from that perspective, I think it's good to push website owners and challenge them to generate revenue in a way that makes the user happy instead of ticks them off. Um, that's always been kind of a key thing for me. So I don't mind seeing those things go. And I am at heart a marketer. I, I need to emphasize that even more of a marketer than I am a developer or anything else. Um, but I just I just think there's a lot of lazy marketing out there. I recently went on a whole Twitter rant uh, about the latest trend, which is actually using browser notifications in order to get people to subscribe. That is the worst thing ever. And I hope it dies a fast and fiery death. But all that being said, I do not like how Google has become our benevolent dictator. Um, it's, you know, it's now the browser by far, um, it's the search engine and it's the email service. So it's very much become the internet in you know, a way that we haven't really seen since, uh, back where you had like AOL and things like that, that they had their own walled gardens. Um, if we have to, you know, if we have to jump every time Google says jump, then we have a problem because now we're bending to Google's will. And we're just really, really hoping um, that they don't do bad things. And so I'm happy to see pop-up ads um, kind of get, you know, get slapped a little bit. I don't really like the fact that it's coming from Google as the reason that this is happening. Now that's an excellent point. They do control like a lot of our internet experiences, and they tap into our data. And and what you said is is. Very true. Like we jump every time they say jump, uh, and we ask how high because we don't want to get slapped down in SEO. Uh, Nick, do you do, do you think that it's a good thing that they're looking out for user experience, and and maybe is it a bad thing that that uh, they're telling people basically how to run their sites? I think Matt hit, hit the nail on the head there. I think it's. It's bad because they're dictating, you know, when we should jump and how we should jump. Um, 
but I do think from a UX standpoint, it's a good thing. Um, I think the the intrusive pop-ups aren't aren't good at all. I just don't like hearing that from Google basically pushing us to do that, you know. So, but yes, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I just, you know, Google controls us, and that that's kind of a bummer. No, and that's true. We basically, uh, you know, anybody who cares about search, we are kind of controlled by Google like more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? Good for user experience, but maybe bad for us overall? Or um, I mean, like Matt said, I'm I'm heavy marketer. I, I mean, I don't I don't write code. I I I can do PHP, but I can say I'm slow at it. <laughs> I, I know how to manipulate my sites and stuff, but. I'm a marketer at heart. And so, I mean, just looking at the data, pop-ups generate signups. Like there's no lie about that. I think everyone can probably agree with that. Like they generate way more signups than a thing in the cyborg or anything. And so like on um, one of my blogs, you know, I use a pop-up and it's on a delay until you get down to the bottom of the page. So I know that, oh, you've read the content. I think that's one way, a good way to use a pop-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and still take advantage of some of the signups. Um, but the pop-ups, yeah, like on the Forbes and all that, on these those clickbait article sites, all, all those kind of pop-ups, I think they are kind of destroying the web. Um, and I'm going to have to go with Matt here and say I, I am not liking how Google is changing everything here recently. As far as SEO, just um, quick, they I don't know how many of you dive into SEO that deep, but their recent changes with the keyword planner they removed all the data um, and are now grouping the close variant keywords. Meaning like an example, if you look up uh, CDN, three letters, or content distribution network, which are completely different words, they show the exact same search volume now in Keyword Planner, which they're about 20,000 different in difference if you look at the search volume. So for me, when you're doing keyword research, Keyword Planner is now completely useless. Um, so now I'm relying on other tools like ZemRush and stuff. But So I found workarounds and stuff. But I think Google dictating all these things with the pop-ups and all this stuff is, is very scary, actually. And I'm, I'm actually afraid um, in the, you know, five years from now what it's going to be like. Do you, do you, here's like kind of a follow-up question to that. Do you, do you think them changing the keyword planner, is that related to some of their smaller changes like caffeine or hummingbird? I, I mean, I hate Google. So I'm just going to say I think they're doing it because they want us to pay for AdWords. That's literally why I think they're doing it. They're trying to take data. Why would they take organic data that we already have had for years and just say, no, you can't have it? Well, I don't, I don't see any purpose of removing that, that information from us having, having it. I, I, that's my personal opinion, but... No, okay, well, that that's great. I think we got time for one more story, and I, I'm going to choose this one because it, it ties into directly what we're talking about right there. Uh, Google removes AdSense three ads per page limit and starts focusing on content to ad balance. Uh, is Are they just saying, like, okay, it's time to make some money? What, what do you think about this, Matt? Well, that one I'm actually way more okay with, I think, because... Like AdSense itself is their product. So as far as I'm concerned, they're welcome to make the rules however they want. And, you know, if you're not 
happy with those rules to that extent. You know, you can go and change at networks and everything. Um, but again, it becomes problematic where Google's very strong influence on search engine rankings and being found online means that, you know, this is inevitably going to carry over to everybody. And Google says, Google is going to say, hey, this is how ads need to be run now. And that's where things get problematic. But with AdSense itself, I mean, I don't, I don't care what they do. Um, you know, they're, they're one monetization option of many. So their changes directly don't have a massive impact on everybody's ability to make money. But changes to the ranking algorithms that have considerations into things like, uh, you know, ad content balance and stuff. Well, again, they're, they're kind of trickier. And it's, it's definitely a more gray area than Google simply saying, hey, don't have pop-ups, which... I'm far more against for, for reasons I explained. Yeah, uh, very much so. Nick, do you feel that Google kind of loosening the restriction on, uh, you, you know, the three AdSense ads per page limit and making it more about a ratio, is this good for publishers? I think so. I think it's a good thing. Um, and like Matt said, it is their product. Um, so they have, you know, the ability to do that and they're they're totally welcome to do that and i think for um you know sites maybe with like infinite scroll or you know things like that i think that could be beneficial to um those site owners as well so yeah i, th I think that's a good thing uh brian uh how would as a marketer like how how would you exploit this do you do you think this is good for say sites that rely on uh ads for monetization or I mean funny thing is because in my spare time I do affiliate marketing and one of my sites uses AdSense so I, I use it as one of my sources of income and it makes quite a bit of money like it makes uh, AdSense is definitely one of my incomes like um, and so I was actually excited to hear the rule because um, you know some of my sites I still push out really great content and I always will as an inbound marketer like that's just in my blood and so, you know, people that have great content usually have all this extra space. And so putting another ad, you know, in the bottom of your page or something might not, you know, it might just help increase your revenue just slightly more. Um, and it's not going to overdo anything at all. Um, so I'm excited for that. Um, also, these clickbait sites, which I'm sure we've all clicked into them and they say, see slide one, two, <laughs> three. The only reason they do that is because they have an AdSense ad on every single one of those individual pages. Wow. Um, and it just, if you don't click them, it just generates revenue from impressions. And that's the only reason they do that. So hopefully those sites will now go to like uh, Nick said, maybe infinite scroll or just, you know, just a normal web page from now on. Um, I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see with that. But um, I was excited for the role. And I think I read one of the Google reps answers to why they did that. And I think they said, I don't know the stat for sure, but I think it was only 1% of, of people, they only had issues with um, ever overdoing the ad limits or penalties against it. So it, a majority of the population isn't, wasn't trying to break that rule or get around it. So I don't, I don't see a bunch of people just throwing 50 ads up all of a sudden. No, uh, uh, that's an excellent point. I didn't even realize that uh, that wasn't really a rule that was being abused that much. So, you know, maybe people 
on overall have, have figured out that user experience is uh, the most important thing. Um, okay, so I think we're going to go to our break, and then we're going to come back with our main topic, which is exploring the relationships between agencies and freelancers back in a minute. Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. All right, we're back on WP Tonic. This is episode 121, exploring the relationship between agencies and freelancers. My guest panel today is Matt Inglot of Freelance Transformation, Nick Meek. Mager of Primer Co. and Brian Lee Jackson of Key CDN. And uh, Key, uh, st- I'm sorry, did I mess it up? Uh, uh, Keensta. I've actually switched. Oh, you okay? Keensta. I'm sorry. Scratch that. It's Brian Lee Jackson of Keensta. Um, okay, so d- the first thing I want to like ask is uh, Matt, tell people a little bit about your backstory, um, you know, as an agency owner for, the, for those people that don't know it. And, and kind of tell us like a, a, a few things that you learned uh, about um, running like an agency uh, with contractors versus like having like in-house employees. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely a big part of my story. So I got into this thing like right at like the beginning of my career, basically. I was in my second year of university, college for most of you in America. Um, so I was in my second year and I basically was working at a startup part time and they, they did what startups tend to do and ran out of money and suddenly I needed work. So I started building websites for people and very quickly I kind of started out operating under the Tilted Pixel name and that was just me for the most part. Um, but very quickly, I did start contracting out work. Just for example, I'm not a designer, so the websites that I designed were horrendous. Um, and it's very good that other people do that now. <laughs> but at some point, because I think partially because I kind of uh, lived in what could be considered Canada's kind of little Silicon Valley, Waterloo, Ontario, um, there was this whole startup mentality and this whole growth mentality that comes with that. So the impression I had in my head is that I had to grow, and growth was the only thing. So I opened an office while still going to school. I hired my first full-time developer while still like living in like student housing and like, you know, eating crappy food and all that good student stuff. I was already like supporting someone else with a proper salary. And I just kind of kept it growing from there. I got a bigger office and I got more developers. But the problem is um, the whole thing just kind of started crashing around it, around me. And, you know, we can get into that if you want, but basically, long story short is I never figured out the business model, and pretty soon I also found myself, you know, not only running out of money, but also quite miserable. So in 2011, I got rid of the office, and I slowly transitioned everything to what I have right now, which is what I call my micro-agency, where it's me, a couple part-time employees, and then everything else is contractors. My core team is actually contractors. It's completely location independent. I, last year I moved several thousand kilometers away from my closest clients, and it's all run from my home, my home office, which I'm sitting in right now. And you know I haven't really looked back, and I think the transformation has been wonderful because I really like running my agency now. I did not enjoy it when I had an office and everything. And that doesn't mean you know office space bad, remote good, 
but that's just kind of been the difference for me. With employees, it's meant fixed overhead because you were asking John, well, what's the difference? Well, the more more fixed overhead you have in your business, the more you consistently have to bring in business at a very consistent rate. And that's very difficult in service work. So you have your office rent, you have your employees, and you have to bring in enough business. But you can't take on too much because then you don't have the capacity. So it's very inelastic. Uh, but you can't take in too little because then you don't have enough money to cover all of your fixed expenses. Whereas with the contractor model, um, I can take on very little work and I'll still make money at the end of the year. Or I can take on a lot of work and then I'll make more money at the end of the year. And I've had both types of years and both types of years have been fantastic. It's meant that I've been able to, for example, go away for two months and travel Poland and Ukraine and have a lot of fun and not look back and as well as do some other cool things. So. I definitely think, um, for me personally, I like that better. And I do think that there's also a gradient. So if you do have an office, you do have employees, well, consider that contractors could probably be a significant part of your workforce as well. And that gives you flexibility that you otherwise wouldn't have. That's kind of my quick two cents. Totally. Uh, Nick, tell us a little bit uh, about your... Uh, model it primer and and are you guys primarily like a in-house or or are you guys more remote so uh it's three of us at primer it's me the developer we've got a designer and then we've got a, a marketing guy um so we kind of all started um separately just freelancing we all worked at the same company for about two years um and then up at the end of that time we realized that we were you know we had enough work at that point to kind of do our own thing and, and go freelance. Um, and, you know, once we made that transition, it became pretty difficult um, to wear all the hats because we, we realized how much we were really missing, you know, because we had to do accounting and bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. Um, but mainly our issue was just finding the business, and that was really hard for us because all we wanted to do was, you know, what we've been studying for the last three to four years and just focus on that. But you can't really do that when you, when you go off and freelance. So, um, our, our next move after that was basically trying to find other agencies in our area, uh, and partnering with those people. And that's been, uh, the best move that we've made thus far. And that we've been doing that probably for about a year and a half now. Um, and I'd probably say about 95% of our work comes from other agencies and just partnerships that we've created over the last year. Um, and yeah, that's been really great. We're all remote. Um, and I, I really wouldn't change a thing this far. And pretty much we've gotten to the point now where um, I've got another part-time contractor um, that we're working with um, just to handle capacity and stuff like that. So we're kind of just acting as a an overall creative team for, for marketing companies that couldn't offer that service before because they didn't have the in-house talent to do so. No, definitely. And, and, uh, like for me, myself, I, I act in that capacity like a lot too. Uh, it kind of as a, um, person that comes in and, and, and does stuff for like larger agencies. And that probably accounts for about half my business as well. Um, Brian, when you were working uh, for the agency that was doing marketing for medical companies, uh, what kind of model was that? Was that all in-house? Did you guys have contractors? Uh, did you guys employ freelancers at all? 
it was mainly in house. We would um, actually contract out a lot of the content, um, which is really hard to find sometimes. Um, I I like writing everything myself. I don't trust anybody to write content, um, but that's what I do full time now, so I, I can do that. Um, but when you're at an agency, yeah, finding those those partners, I guess, kind of like Matt and Nick, are very crucial to bigger agencies because um, a big problem that um, we have is you start the agencies are all about numbers, basically the bigger ones and. They're signing up as many clients as they can. And for the employees working there in the cubicles, which I was, and I will never go back to the corporate lifestyle. I've been remote for two years now. I'll never, ever go back. Um, but you know, upper management is always pushing the numbers. And the people um, don't get as much hands-on approach, I guess, is what, as what they should be. Um, I, I feel like... Um, if you go with a full-blown agency, sometimes you need to be careful because they might be juggling 500 other clients. And so, you know, they might do just enough to appease you, but nothing more than that. And so I would say even going with a smaller thing like you or Nick or Matt's outfit, like I think I'm sure you guys get way more um, love to your work than those bigger agencies. Um, and so... I would urge businesses to actually find more people like like you guys instead of you know going in and googling you know what's the biggest web development agency and going straight there. You know that that could be a big problem just because I've seen it from the corporate corporate aspect. Hmm. Uh, that's totally insightful. Um, I'm I'm glad you say that. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to ask about too. Uh, Matt, when does it make sense to, you know, look at a large agency or like a smaller like agency, like a consultancy or just a straight up freelancer? Um, Is it all about budget or is it about specialization? Uh, You know, when does it make sense? That's an interesting question because part of it, like, like really what's a freelancer compared to an agency? Well, it's just describing the size of the organization, right? An agency will typically have multiple people. Freelancer will typically be one person. Um, and then you have the questions, do you go for a big agency or small agency? Um, so in terms of the big agency, I'm just going to echo Brian's sentiments. I'm not saying that they're universally bad because I think if you're like a big Fortune 500 brand, they probably do have a lot to offer. I think the biggest thing a big agency has to offer is their contacts and experience playing on a very large playing field. And that's probably what they're best at. Like if you if you want a commercial hitting the airwaves on like primetime TV, for example, there is a lot to be said for a big agency and the fact that they know how to make that happen. On the other hand, you know, Brian's completely right that there is that issue of appeasing you versus really wanting to work with you uh, versus like a small agency where, I mean, the, no- the owner actually knows who you are. Like for me personally, we take on very little clients and I'm very strict about that. I turn away about 90% of our business and just refer it elsewhere, um, which is the opposite of that numbers approach because I have a very specific income goal I need to meet and I can meet it usually by halfway through the year. So I'm not rushed to find more clients. I'd rather find the right clients. Now, should you hire a freelancer? Well, sure. I think the biggest thing between hiring a freelancer and an agency, generally speaking, and this is where we, I think we have to be careful, 
Um, generally speaking, an agency is more likely to have a bit of a process to getting things done. A freelancer, by and large, for better or worse, oftentimes this person will have more of an employee mindset where like, it's almost like contract employment where they expect you to, to, be, to be the boss, to give them work, and they do it. In theory, an agency is more of a consulting engagement where they tell you what should be done. Um, but of course, you're going to find great examples of the exact opposites of what I just told you. But that's just what I've generally found. And that's something to keep in mind. So if you have a very strong idea of what you want, like if I'm hiring a designer, I know what I want. I know how to manage a designer, no problem. I can go find a freelancer that'll do that. If I'm, if I'm looking for ideas, if I'm looking for help on execution, I probably want to talk to an agency and still very much vet them because not all of them have that mindset. No, that's excellent. Um, process is very much like the differentiator. Uh, Nick, w- would you agree with that? And and what would you say um, as far as like fit between, you know, like small agency, big agency, freelancer, you know, when are each of those like the best fit? Uh, well, I definitely agree with Matt, with, with what Matt just said. Um, I think it comes down to uh, capacity, um, the process and, and budget. I think depending on what your end goal is, um, you know, how big your project is, whether you want to be, if you're more of a hands-on client, um, it kind of depends which route you should take. Um, I personally, I think that this, going the smaller route is better because you can, you know, directly talk to who you're going to be working with. You know, it's, you know, it's just, it's more personal than going the agency route. Like a lot of the agencies around here that it's just a numbers game and they try to get as many projects as they possibly can under their belt. And they ultimately outsource it to people like me anyways. Um, so that's kind of what it comes down to. I think, I think overall the process is really important. Um, and I think it, that's what kind of breaks up the two. I think the freelancer is definitely more of a employee contractor mindset, like Matt said. Um, so it really just depends, I think, what your end goal is. But I think e- each of them offer their their pros and their cons for sure. No, definitely. Uh, and, and Brian, I, I want to ask you this uh, as well. When it comes to and you've worked in different size uh, agencies, you know, uh, as far as like getting business, are, are what changes like when you when you go from like a small agency to a big agency? When we with a big agency, the nice thing about getting clients is you have a lot bigger AdWords budget. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the first thing I can tell you. Um, so getting, I would say, the bigger you get, actually, the easier it is to get clients. Um, just because you have this whole budget. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, $20,000 a month kind of a budget just to get clients. Um, and so it's it's very easy, unless you're horrible with AdWords or something, <laughs> it's very easy to get to get clients. Um, but there's, there's that to be said for the smaller people too. I mean, some small teams and stuff I know have better connections than some of the, the agencies I've worked with. I um, mean, it's just because they're that in tune even with like the WordPress community, like, you know, there's people that have like all these connections and it's just cause they, they know all the right people. Um, and there's some, I'm sure WordPress agencies out there that don't know nearly as many people. So it, I, it can go both ways. I think. So yeah, definitely. Like it comes down to just researching like who you're doing business with, like a lot of it. Yeah. 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 
Um, okay, let's shift. I, I, you know, I want to ask uh, the panel. Here's a good question: If you're an agency and and you're needing to uh, find someone to do that overflow work, or find someone that you can partner with, whether that's a smaller agency or a freelancer, uh, I, I've seen that kind of go both ways. What are you looking for in your ideal partner? You know, whether that's a contractor, whether that's a, a smaller agency that that you can uh, subcontract out to. What are the ideal things that you're looking for, Matt? Um, comes down to two things, and that's like ninety nine percent of my criteria. One, you obviously have to be able to deliver work to our standard, and our standard is pretty high, which means you're going to have to deliver very good work. Um, and, but just as importantly, you're going to have to deliver it on time and to the specifications that we discussed. Um, so if you ever disappear off the face of the earth, then, you know, we are no longer friends. Like that is the end of that relationship. And I'm very strong about that because at the end of the day, I have to answer to my clients. So if I'm working with somebody that kind of considers themselves an artistic genius and works on their own schedule and is their own unique person um, and is going to disappear on me for three months because, you know, charm and whimsy have taken them away elsewhere, um, they're not a viable person to hire, um, point blank. So that's, I think, the most important thing is, I mean, you got to be able to produce the results, but after producing results, you got to be somebody that we can actually work with. So. Uh, that means that when you say you're going to do something, you do it, and you do it on time, and you do it in a way that makes sense. So the other part of it is sometimes you'll get people that just surprise you. We agreed with the client. We agreed with you that we're going to do things a certain way. We're going to build this. These are the wireframes and all of that. And we come back, and it's something completely different. Maybe it's a good idea, but there was no discussion or anything. And now I have this thing that if I show it to the client, you know, I have no idea what their reaction is going to be. So, I mean, you got to be somebody that can kind of play ball with, with a team, understand we're doing this for a client, understand that there's a business problem we're trying to solve. And sometimes solving that business problem is not the same thing as doing exactly what you'd rather do or what you think should be done. It's what we've decided is going to solve that problem for that client and do it within their budget and so on. So team player and delivers results. Absolutely. And I've definitely found those to be uh, key things. And, and Nick, you are uh, in a position like where you both uh, work with larger agencies and, you know, perhaps you even uh, have contractors that work for you. You know, what are the things that, that your agency partners look for and what are the things that you look for in, in a contractor? Um, so the things that I look for, um, it comes down to talent. Um, and that's, you know, that's usually the hardest thing to find for me. I've went through, you know, before I found the guy that I've been working with now, it took me about five to six people just because I'm so picky and my standard standards are set so high, you know? Um, and that's, what's really important to me. Um, so I'd say that is probably number one. Um, and number two, I'd have to say responsiveness. I really like it when people, you know, email me back within five to 10 minutes. It just shows that they're really on top of their game um, and they're not just going to disappear on me when I'm working with them. Um, so those are the two things that I personally look for. Um, and that's what I offer to my clients as well. I try to focus on those two things pretty heavily and 
uh, yeah. No, and and I think that's really important too. You know, when when you say um, just being able to execute mm-hmm. on what the plan is, because not only is your name on it, mm-hmm. but like the the people above you, like their name is on it too. Exactly. And if you're making them look bad, that's not going to be good for you. Right. Uh, you know, B- Brian. Um, you know, when you worked uh, in your agency, you know, what were the things that you looked for? Uh, in contractors well, even right now for for one of my sites that's it's more of a hobby but it does make money so i guess you can't say it's a hobby um but you know i outsource some of the writing and you know i'm very very picky about that and i think it's a big problem that a lot of businesses have when they outsource writing is um like matt and nick said for me quality is the number one thing i want i want quality of writing um and it's so hard to find and um to echo what Nick said again, um, like he went through, he said like five guys. Sometimes I've had to go through 20 different writers and then I find one that I really love and I stick with that person as long as they will stick with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's very important that people realize too that they don't have to stick with someone if they don't like them. There's tons of other freelancers and people out there. If they're not getting the quality they need, you know, try another one and try another one after that until you find someone you really like. Um, and then just stick with those right now. I have like, um, I probably tried 50 plus writers and I have three right now that I can pretty much give anything to. And I love what they produce. Those are all really great responses. And, and I'm just going to echo something that each of you guys said is what I've found like in, in cultivating my own relationships is first off, you need to be able to do the work. You have to have the talent. You have to be able to execute on on what the vision is. Um, and two, you have to be able to do what you say you're going to do on time, and and not for like you know five times the cost, like whatever you agree to, on time. And, and third, maybe the most important thing, like communicate. Communication is so important. And uh, what I found is, you know, is any type of web professional, if you communicate in a timely manner. Uh, honest manner, um, you're going to be ahead of probably 85% of everybody else in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just my own personal experience and, and what everybody I've ever run into has said. So uh, here's a question for you guys. Um, how is remote work changing how agencies are structured? Um, you know, traditionally we've seen like people – you know, gather in a building um, and there's something to be said for culture. Um, but is that really like as necessary as it was like people gathering to the same building each day from nine to five? Uh, Matt, how was how remote work changing the face of agencies? Well, I'm definitely on one side of the argument. I think that definitely uh, it's a good thing and it's making a lot of the traditional reasons for having office space irrelevant um, because you can do work from anywhere. And the huge upside of that is that makes it far easier to build an agency that doesn't have a ton of fixed overhead. And that also works even if you are the type of agency owner. And, and I've met a few and I get their arguments that say like office space is important to us. That's cool. I, I don't hate your office. I hated my office, but your office is cool. It's got a lot of neat stuff on the walls. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> the thing is, even if you do have an office, it does mean not everybody has to be able to come into the same place of work to do work. So when I started my business, we didn't have Dropbox. Dropbox wasn't out yet. Dropbox was one of the biggest revolutions in, I think, how we can all collaborate because it meant that I no longer had to have a flaky VPN that barely ever worked as the only way for people to access files remotely. So either you were in the office or if you wanted to work remotely, you had to hope that the internet connection at the office was working, that the cleaners hadn't accidentally disconnected like the ethernet cable, that the software hadn't crashed, the router hadn't crashed, and it was a very big problem if any of those things happened because now you're jumping into a car and driving to get the files or you're waking up someone else to do the same. So life before the cloud was like heavily geography focused. And now thanks to Dropbox and thanks to Google Apps and a million other cloud services, we're kind of, I think, taking for granted what that really means for us. And what it ultimately comes down to is we can hire people anywhere and we can choose the way we work. And even if you have an office, you can still have a remote team, a team of contractors and so on. So not every single person on your team has to be somebody that's a body in the office in order to do work. Uh, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question to that really quick. Um, say you're a traditional agency where everybody gathers in the office. Um and you're hiring a remote worker. I, and what I found in my experience and, and just talking to different people and, and just, you know, just my own observations, uh, it's really hard to bring in like one person who's remote um, unless you're taking one person that's already part of that established team and then they go and, and do remote work. And then it's like easier for the rest of the team to kind of accept that. Do you, do you find that's true? Is, is that a big barrier for traditional in-house agencies to overcome? I can only speak to that to some extent. I was at one point in my agency life where I did have employees in-house and I did have people working remotely and it worked. Uh, but they were also very different relationships. The in-house employees were by and large full-time. Uh, the remote people were contractors. So right there, there is a big difference. And there was some collaboration between the two, but it was different than the people in-house. Um, but I don't think that it's as big of a barrier as it sounds. I think it's more of a learning curve where no matter what, if you want to do remote work, I don't care who you are, you are going to have to learn a new set of tools, a new set of technologies, and you might have to rethink your project management processes. I think that's a big one because you can no longer gather a group of people around the whiteboard anytime you feel like it. You have to actually have a process for doing these things. Um, so there is a cost, I think, I guess, to the remote that you have to learn some tools and technologies and you do have to change your processes. But processes can be changed. No, excellent, excellent. Uh, Nick, in, in your estimation, uh, yeah. Are more agencies now like embracing remote work or are a lot of them still kind of entrenched in in-house? I think, I think it's slowly moving there. Um, when I first started, you know, trying to connect with the marketing firms, at least locally in my area, it was, it was challenging because I heard all of those things. I heard, oh, well, I've already got employees. So, you know, the value proposition that you're giving me doesn't really make sense because I'm already paying payroll tax, you know, or the culture you know, I'm not sure if this is a good fit because culturally we're not, you know, 
you're working remote, so you know what are my clients going to think? I got questions like that all the time. Um, but for the companies that I do work for remotely, um, I've got three agencies that I work for right now, and it's been a great experience um, for them and for me. Um, and I think I think that's really where it's going with the with the increase of freelancers and and people kind of doing their own thing. I think contract work is becoming way more popular. So I think businesses are going to start switching their business model and eventually going there because it, you know, it lowers, it lowers overhead. You no longer need an office. You can have a virtual office with mail forwarding, you know? Um, so I think it's pretty beneficial to look, you know, into the remote work and, you know, cutting costs greatly by having a remote team. So yeah, I definitely think that's where things are moving. Okay, so here's a, here's a follow up question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you need to sell clients on the fact that you have remote workers, or is that something that is not even a concern to them? When clients come directly to me, that's never been a concern. I've never had any clients ask me if my you know my team's remote. Uh, the only time I've ever been asked that has been from other marketing agencies. They're just you know, would you be okay with coming in the office? you know, from this time to this time. And it's like, why? <laughs> I'm, I can come in for a meeting if you want me to, but, you know, I've, I've never gotten that from a client. I've only gotten that from uh, other agencies. Intriguing. Very intriguing. Um, why do you think that is? Just a question. Culture. I don't know. I think it's old traditions. I think people like to, you know, I don't know, meeting face to face, you know, I still go in for meetings and stuff like that. I do understand doing that. Um, you know, I go in as a white label employee on part of their team and we meet with clients at their offices and stuff like that. Um, so at that, from that standpoint, it makes sense. Um, but for me to work, you know, three, three days out of the week at your office, um, I don't see the benefit there. Uh, Brian, what do you, what do you think about that? Um, um, is do you think that the that, that traditional agencies kind of value like butts and seats over like, oh, you're actually getting the work done? I know some previous agencies, I'm not going to name any names that I was working with, are having some issues with this problem. And part of it, I think it is some people cannot work remotely. Some people are just not built for it. Like you have to have discipline. I know when I started working remotely, it was it was kind of hard at the beginning. It was like a whole different change from sitting in the cubicle. But um, but I, man, I get so much more work done. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but some people are um, an eight to five kind of person. They like going in, they do their work, and they're done. You know, some people need that. I think, and they do better work that way. Um, I think anyone working remotely has to be kind of even. They have to be kind of an entrepreneur. They have to be self-disciplined. All that has to line up. Um, and if you're not like that, I don't think you're going to work or succeed working remotely. So I, I think there is still a place for people hiring employees that work in the office because some people work work better that way. Um, but I'm, I'm all for remote, personally. So I'm going to ask you one more follow-up question before we go to our last break. Um, so... Basically, like the the people that thrive in a in house environment, they would you say that they have more of an employee mentality, or that's how they're wired? Like it's easier for them. And the people who are okay, like working remotely, they have more of an entrepreneur mentality. 
Is that a fair generalization? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people I'm thinking of, just I have these people in my head because I know who they are. And uh, I mean, they're people that, you know, they like they like putting on the suit and tie. They like getting up, getting their coffee, going into the office as part of their routine. Like I think we each, even at home, we each have our own routine, but it just happens to be at home. Um, but they, I, I think they are very more employee mindset rather than go go get a mindset. Like anyone that works at home, I think like finding your own clients, finding your own leads, that's just something like we all have had to learn how to do and make connections. Um, some people just aren't, maybe some people aren't cut out for that either too, but I think some people don't actually want to, um, this might sound bad, but I don't think some people actually like to put in the effort either. I think some people are content with their eight to fives. Um, and it, it pains me to say that, but I know people that are, are that way. They're happy doing their thing, working, <laughs> but that's good for them. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely employee mindset, you know, remote entrepreneur mindset. I think two different things and teams like buffer and all those teams, you know, every single person on that team, you can tell has the entrepreneur go get a mindset. Like they're all that way. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's, it's very, there's a very big contrast between the two. No, I, I think that's really insightful. And, and when you see like entrepreneurs, like, um, say like Gary Vee, but he's not the only one that says this. When they talk about self-awareness, like in knowing yourself and knowing how you're wired, maybe that's part of that. And it's not right or wrong for anyone to, you know, thrive better as an employee because there are some people who are excellent talents and they just thrive better in that environment. And then there's some people who are more, you know, independent. And I think a lot of people would take that as a judgment, but it's not really a judgment. It's just, you know, how you're wired okay we're going to go to our last break we're going to do one last question um and then we're going to end the podcast and then we'll have some bonus youtube content uh going to break we'll be back want to turn your wordpress website into an online speed machine go on over to wp tonic they'll set up digital ocean websites hosting on solid state drives and while you're there don't forget to sign up for wp tonic's maintenance packages wp tonic offers some of the very best wordpress maintenance packages on the market so those who are serious about getting the very best platform for their wordpress sites make sure you go on over to wp-tonic.com all right we're coming back from break this is WP Tonic, episode 121, the relationships between freelancers and agencies. And on the panel today, it's Matt Inglot, uh, Nick Meager, and Brian Jackson. Uh, final question. This one comes from my co-host, Jonathan, in the chat room. He says, uh, when you're working with clients and they think that, that maybe like uh, they're the ones in charge, uh, as a freelancer, how do you avoid the situation with having lots of small bosses when you're a freelancer? And I, I think this happens like even if you're a small agency, you have a ton of small bosses. Uh, Matt, how do, how do you deal with that? So I think 80, maybe even 90% of the time, the root problem is having that employee mindset to begin with. So even if you are a freelancer, by the way, um, if you're looking for the higher rates, if you're looking for the great clients, it is absolutely in your best interest to shift your way of thinking from, from expecting your client to be the boss, 
to give you the work, to tell you what to do, and then you go and you do it. And, you know, it's really the client's problem that creates results or why you're doing it and so on to switch over to more of a consulting mindset where you're the one advising them on the solution and what to do and so on. That makes all the difference in the world and for a couple of reasons. One, when you take that approach, it begins at the sales process, meaning you're naturally going to attract the clients that want that relationship. If you're meeting a client and asking them, for example, if you're building a website, well, how many pages do you want? What do you want on each page and so on? you're going to attract the type of client that wants to tell you all of that. If instead you take a different tack where you ask them, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Why are we building the website? Tell me about your business. And you know, you have that kind of discussion, you're going to attract a different type of client and you're automatically going to filter out the client that just wants to talk about pages. And then when you win those clients, when you maintain that relationship, when you're the advisor, then you know, this is not really going to come up except in rare occasions where, you know, something's just broken down and somebody's just really wired to be weird. But I think truly bad clients are extremely rare. Most of the time we create bad clients with our own inability to serve them properly versus vice versa. And I, I've been at this for 11 years and I've learned all of this the hard way. So I promise you, I've been in a lot of those relationships myself and it's only been in the past four or five years where I kind of really realized what I was doing wrong. Now that's a, an excellent uh, response. A lot of it is about managing expectations correctly. Uh, Nick, um, you know, is as a person who you know helps run like a small agency, how do you you know juggle like all the different clients? Um, you know, how how do you deal with that situation? So I think what Matt said is absolutely right. I think once you change your mindset um, of you know looking at the overall goals and you know what their end goal is for their business and stuff like that that's when it absolutely changed for us you know when we stopped thinking like an employee and we were like all right well what are you looking for what's you know how many pages are you wanting because that was the exact questions we were asking um and i think i think once you change your mindset that's kind of you know people come to us now for more they they come to us specifically because we're going to suggest you know what we honestly think they should do uh, for, you know, online. So I think it's, it is really just a mental switch. Um, I still do have, you know, the clients that are like that. I've had my fair share of nightmare clients, um, but it's definitely started changing ever since I've started, you know, changing my mindset at the sales process and asking all the right questions versus, you know, more of the employee mindset. Excellent. Uh, Brian, when when you worked at the marketing agency, did you guys ever encounter clients that um, kind of rebelled uh, against that hierarchy, and that you kind of had to like put in the line? You know, a, a, like, a problem we actually had um, was where I. This is where I will have to disagree with Matt. I guess slightly is I think there are bad clients out there sometimes. <laughs> Um, and I think sometimes you got to let them go. Um, that's something we actually struggled with. Sometimes we would get clients that and we're talking big client. I mean, we're not talking like just, uh, you know, some mom designing a new blog or something. We're talking like businesses. And, you know, sometimes they have this mentality where they will just nag you constantly. I'm sure you've all been there. Um, but, you know, where they think, you know, most most of the times agencies will charge either, you know, by the project, by the hour, or they'll be on a monthly, you know, 
stipend or something for, for work. And I think depending on how you charge, it can be a problem because some clients will think that they can call you every single morning um, or email you, you know, five times a day. And so I think um, sometimes as an agency too, you have to be a little careful of um, trying to work too hard for a client, which sound, might sound wrong, but you, um, there's sometimes you have to let clients go and to help maintain your productivity, especially when you're juggling, you know, 50 other people. You can't devote, it's like the 80-20 rule kind of a thing, like don't put all your work into that one person when all the more productive, more expensive clients are on the other side. So it's... No, I think that's an excellent point. You're not just managing time, you're managing like the energy of your team. Yeah. And and it can definitely get depleted. But uh, I'm in boundaries help. Uh, sometimes you kind of have to explain those things like over and over uh, to make it clear. But I, I, I think I've seen somebody tweet this before. It's like if you're, uh, mm, if you say like your hours are like nine to five and you have developers like answering like text at 11 p.m. That is no bueno. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this has been, we're really going to wrap up the podcast. This has been an excellent roundtable. Um, so, panelists, I'd like you guys to tell everybody like how they can get a hold of you uh, and, you know, what you have going on. Uh, Matt, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, best way is freelancetransformation.com. Uh, you'll find a podcast there. You'll find a whole bunch of material and so on. And, of course, if you want to reach out to me directly, Matt at freelancetransformation.com is a wonderful way to reach me. Very good. Nick, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, probably the best way would be on Twitter. Uh, it's just Nick underscore meager. Uh, or if you would like to email me directly, that's fine, too. You could just do Nick at buyprimer.co. Uh, yeah, and those are the best ways. Very good. Brian, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, um, email is uh, brian at keensta.com, or um, I pretty much live on Twitter, so uh, at Brian Lee Jackson is uh, my Twitter handle. Absolutely. And you can get a hold of me at my website, which is lockdowndesign.com, or you can uh, find me on Twitter. It's lockdown underscore, and my co-host Jonathan, I'll speak for him. Uh, you can find him at wp-tonic.com, and you can also find him on Twitter, Jonathan Denwood, uh, and he responds really quickly to uh, people on Twitter. Um, for the podcast, this has been WP Tonic episode 121. And uh, we're going to go into our YouTube bonus content. If you want to find that, you can find that at wp-tonic.com. You can also find that on our YouTube channel. Remember to subscribe to our uh, iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, it helps other people find us. It help drives, helps drive us up in the iTunes rankings. Uh, we totally appreciate it. Uh, signing off. Mm-hmm.